Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's episode will be heard across the EWT and Global Catholic Radio Network. And as a public service, we are going to talk to you about plants that might be negatively affecting your skin this spring and summer. Yes, it's uh, it's that time of the year again, you know, and I I think a lot of people, I, I don't know if you guys get this, I'm sure, Tom, well, you're, you're doing surgery only, so a lot of my life during the summer is people coming in with a rash. Well, we live in the Midwest, and a lot of our listeners do as well, and so these first days of sunshine, yeah. people immediately get outside and want to stay outside, and that means we're going to encounter wildlife in the form of Get plants. out there doing the garden and whatnot. And uh, State Flower of Indiana is Poison Ivy, <laughs> right, where we're recording here. I know there's other stuff, too, Tom's going to enlighten us about. Have you guys had Poison Ivy before? Oh, yeah. Actually, this is odd. Well, Tom may say that it's not odd. I never got Poison Ivy. My mother used to get Poison Ivy from my jeans when I was a kid. My Ooh. blue jeans, that is. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that. And then suddenly, as an adult, I'm super, super sensitive. If I just walk through the ivy bed in my front yard, <clears throat> which is littered with poison ivy, uh, I pick it up. Isn't that bizarre? Oh, man. Yeah. No, it's not bizarre. Well, <laughs> I, I, I believe it. It's, yeah. it's one of those Do you things. react? I, minimally. So I have, but not as much as I think I should. And it's, it's interesting, too. I'll, I'll be interested to learn more about the sensitization process because mm. I never got a good explanation of that in medical school. And um, my kids are out playing in the woods every day and they'll rarely get it. I'd say we might have one kid a month get poison ivy, which is a low rate in my house. Um, <laughs> our houses like that be might be common. high. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in the woods, it's, it's ubiquitous here uh, as it is in most places that we're going to talk about. But just this idea for this show of Plants can cause you trouble. I mean, there's greatness in plants as oh, well. Oh, certainly. We'll talk about much some more of the greatness. Yeah, some of the medications and things derived from from plants. But yeah, I mean, it's not a inconsequential encounter sometimes. Well, and we're always thinking. I mean, I don't know if it's more of an in vogue thing, but we're always thinking of the benefits of plants. Especially, a lot of folks are into you know naturopathic type supplements and whatnot. Sure. Did you know this medicine comes from this and this plant can cause that and this is great and here's how you can forage for edible things in the forest, you know? Right. There's a there's a big movement there, but not all plants are are holy, are they, Tom? Well, you know, a lot of patients like, you know, I'm using this because it's natural and because it's natural, it's good. Mm. Well, mosquitoes carrying dengue fever are natural. Poison ivy is natural, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily good. Now, many natural things are, but this one, not in this Yeah, setting. this is the post-fall poison. <laughs> this ivy. is the post-fall. Yeah, before mm. the fall, I'm sure Adam and Eve, not, no problem. They yeah. probably ate the berries. That's no where the fig leaves came from. <laughs> yeah. right? Whenever I encounter that it's natural, it must be good. I think, have you ever watched the Discovery Channel and seen, you know, sort of a bear eat its cubs or something? Yeah. Natural doesn't necessarily. <laughs> Cheetah versus gazelle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing Someone good. loses. Nature is ugly. <laughs> well, they, and that's the thing with plants. So hopefully in this episode, everybody's going to learn and including me, a lot about poison ivy in particular, but plants in general, so we can be smarter, smarter plant interactors this summer. Yes, yeah. and so today's trivia question category is plants and your heart. Mm -hmm. Yes, gonna stray a little bit from the skin deeper into the heart. And, and the question is this, what is either the common or the um, official binomial name of the plant from which, oh, 100 years ago or more, they discovered that one of the chemicals can heart, help a beating heart beat more strongly. Mm -hmm. And is still today, this medicine is used in patients with congestive heart failure. What is the name of that plant that has purple flowers? Mm -hmm. You'll get the answer at the end of the show, but after the break, we'll be back with more on poison ivy and other dastardly plants in your garden, in your home, in your woods, here on Dr. Doctor. And we are back today on Dr. Doctor, and we're talking to our, our very own, one and only, Tom McGovern, 
who needs no introduction, but a, a couple of fun facts that, that people didn't know. Well, I've got some fun facts people don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. No. Uh, Tom is uh, an author of a chapter in a book on dermatoses due to plants in, in dermatology, the fifth edition currently coming out, uh, chapter 17. And then also one of the things that I'm a little bit googly-eyed for, kind of a, you know, the starstruck, so to speak, is Tom's the author, one of the authors on the up-to-date article for Poison Ivy as well. Now, we should probably pause and explain to listeners just what up-to-date is. Yeah, 100%. So up-to-date, when when a patient wants to look up, um, do I have cancer or what is this what is this medicine or anything? Mm-hmm. You go to Google, Dr. Google, which uh, has the right answer amidst a lot of wrong answers that you have to <laughs> sift through. With up-to-date, whenever uh, really prescribers, I would say, any providers want to look up something like, hey, I haven't thought about that that enzyme pathway in a long time. Mm-hmm. i got to look it up real quick. What's the treatment for this, the drug for that, the complications from those drugs? Right? We, we've got a secret company program website <laughs> called Up to Date, lovely name, uh, extraordinarily expensive, that uh, people like our good friend Tom here go through and constantly keep up to date with the latest literature. Yeah. every. So, in fact, just last week, I had to update the um, the patient part of what you're going to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's incredible because that allows me in a brief, you know, five to 10 minutes to be able to quote a study on dermatology from this journal nobody actually reads two years ago and say, <laughs> Malali is a genius. No, I've got good friends and good resources. So Tom's a lead author in that. So talk about, uh, I don't know, expertise. Here we are. So we're happy to have you, Tom. Tell us a little bit about the plants we're going to be talking about today. Plants. How in the world did I get interested in even finding out what these plants were? In my dermatology training, they kept you know, showing slides in our unknown sessions, instead of just rashes, they would show us plants. And it's like, why do I have to learn plants? And so you find out that there's a number of different plant families that have certain chemicals or certain structures that are irritating on them. And you find out that it's a small percentage of plants, the vast majority of plants don't do these harmful things to you, but there are some families of plants that do. Of course, the biggest one is gonna be the family that poison ivy belongs to. The, the family is called the Anacardiaceae. Uh, and there's, a, and there's a number of families and genera or genera genuses within that that are included. But then the, the second biggest family for allergic reactions after the poison ivy family is going to be the chrysanthemum or daisy or sunflower family called Asteraceae. Hmm. But then there are all the various cacti and different things that have either big spines or small little hairs on them called glochids. There are others that have chemicals that can be irritating within them, not causing an allergy. And then there are the really fun ones that can cause this thing called called phytophotodermatitis. And if you can say that the first time after seeing it, you get a free Dr. Dr. <laughs> mug. I don't even know if we have Dr. Dr. Mugs. So um, phytophotodermatitis, which requires you know a certain kind of light and a certain kind of chemical, both before the reaction happens. So, um, and most of these things that cause problems in us are actually in the plant to ward off predators so it can oh. continue to propagate. So there is a reason that these are in there. Yes, I'm going with teleology, which we probably should do since this is a Catholic show and we believe in teleology. <laughs> yeah, but were it you a Boy like Scout, Tom? <laughs> I was not. See, because well. this is bringing me back to the little Cub Scout handbook, like, okay, here's poison ivy, stay away from stay that. Away. See, I didn't know how to recognize any of these plants. So in our third year of residency, we had to give a talk to the grand rounds at um, Colorado Dermatology, uh, where I was training in Colorado. And I chose as my topic something I didn't know about, this. So I joined the Denver, Denver Botanical Gardens. I, I took, you know, in dermatology, we all had awesome cameras with ring flashes. And I took pictures of every plant that was in any book listed to have a skin reaction. And I befriended uh, across the country different botanists. When I'd travel, I'd meet with them. And they'd show me plants in different areas. <laughs> and it actually just became a really fun hobby. Well, but if you think about main categories, non-scientific categories about plants, in my mind, I think about stuff that can cause you trouble, poison mm-hmm. ivy, we'll talk mm-hmm. about that and others, stuff that you could subsist off of in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Know, that you could actually And eat I don't and, know those. <laughs> yeah, you could actually prosper from eating them. And then the opposite, stuff that could kill you if you do eat it. And these are all just plants that are growing right. and what a what a spectrum of things that could happen to you. Yeah, you, you know, got to be careful. You got to be careful. Tom, so here's here's one kind of general question that that stumps me a lot. So I hope I'm not uh, 
I don't know, deficient here. A patient comes in with a rash. Mm -hmm. um, they assert that it's from an exposure and they've been outdoors. How often can you name that plant? Uh, never. Okay, good. Uh, you cannot name it from the reaction. Although I, I suppose if they still have the spines or glockids, these little tiny curved hairs like little fish hooks, you might be able to knowing what's in your area. And if they have what's called phytophotodermatitis, you might be able to say, I bet you were around limes, uh, but we'll get to that. Yeah, see, that's a question that people will sometimes ask me. I'm like, I don't know. It's just like a, an know? insect bite. You can't tell by looking at the, the bite, bite typically. I yeah. mean, if it's grouped bites on certain areas, yeah, bed bugs, but you can't tell for sure. Man, and would you be able to tell looking at a rash that it came actually from a plant as opposed to something Some, else? Maybe a medication, yeah. maybe a detergent. No, the, the allergic contact dermatitis that can be caused by any chemical. I mean, nickel is one of the most common ones. Over-the-counter antibiotics like bacitrace and neosporin, they'll cause the same kind of reaction as a plant. Now, with a plant, though, you're typically going to have a, a little different pattern of it. It's going to be streaks like where you would have across it, like mm -hmm. if you were in shorts across your legs. So the part of the body and the, the streaky-shaped nature of it may tell you, yeah, this is more likely a plant than something else. But if you just see an isolated part of the rash, it's going to look like any other cause of allergic contact so dermatitis. You, you mentioned teleology earlier, a word that most people don't use. But um, <laughs> it, but if we think about it, why do we do this? Why do we as humans have, in some cases, horrific reactions to our, our co-parts on the planet? Why does that happen? Uh, because the plant wants, you know, <laughs> wants to uh, continue to uh, persist and not uh, have people eat it or mm -hmm. animals eat it. And yes, we have an animal like body that go with our spiritual soul. So our bodies have some of the same mechanisms that some of those animals that might be a predator or forager for that particular plant. Mm -hmm. It does feel like poison ivy started the fight though. I, like, I mean, yeah, this, you're probably right. This is a defensive <laughs> war. This is not offensive. How, how important is it when we get a rash to figure out what caused it in general? Well, if you're going to successfully treat it, I think it's uh, very important. Okay. That's because that's one of the places that I get held up on a lot. Like frequently we can tell it's some type of, you know, I, I would group things into like a contact dermatitis, sure. so to speak. Um, but it, a lot of times we get really held up on, you know, could it have been this, could have been this, right. could have been this. I'm like, kind of have to run experiments, right? And see what yeah. we react to. Well, that's the dermatology mantra. If it's wet, dry it. If it's dry, wet it, right? <laughs> it does help. So Andrew, I mean, you're a busy family physician. So you see people from every walk of life with every kind of problem. How often do you see people with skin reaction issues? Oh, I'd say daily. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that's super common, and um, particularly in the warmer months, right? Yeah, and especially outside, and, and even more than rashes, I see people worried about rashes, uh -huh. uh, worried hmm. about exposures, worried. I had poison ivy last week. What do I have to do now? I'm right. Like, if it, you know, if it's not bothering you, it's okay. But it's a good point. Right, this know? is common. So listeners, you know, lend an ear. This is, oh, this it, is important. It's so common that in nature, half of Americans will get a rash to poison ivy. Mm -hmm. And if patch tested to poison ivy, about three quarters of Americans will have a reaction to it. Not everybody. And it's interesting. Um, some of us are atopic. Atopic means that you ha might have atopic eczema, you might have hay fever, you might have asthma, any one of these three are together. Mm. Those of us in that condition are less likely than average, far less likely than average to have a reaction to poison. So ivy. Tom, you, you said half of Americans, but we're a very uh, heterogeneous population here in North America. Does it matter if you're a freckly redhead uh, mm -hmm. reacting to something or if you're like me with beautiful olive Italian accent? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what race you are because this will happen. There are plants that have similar allergenic chemicals mm -hmm. to poison ivy all over the world. So tell us a little bit about how we become sensitized to poison ivy, how some people don't, how this is different than people who are allergic to dogs or something. Okay. And it just I just remembered something, Chris, that will go into your question relating to um, maybe different ethnicities. It's not the ethnicity in the U.S. that makes a difference, but if people grow up 
in Latin America, tropical areas, they might first do something like eat mangoes. The rind of the mango has a similar chemical as poison ivy. Mm -hmm. But if you get that chemical in orally, it develops a tolerance uh. for you to react to things that hit your skin. Oh, wow. So even if white, you know, red-haired grows up in that environment, sure. they are less likely to then react to poison ivy because that's almost like oral uh, desensitization. So mamas feed your babies mangoes. Well, you know, <laughs> it's not the fruit. It's the in the rind. So you've got to have some exposure to the rind because the, the pureed fruit probably doesn't have the allergen in it. So how do you get allergic to it? Your body contacts it, and it's a chemical. Uh, it's in a... a a resin called urushiol and urushiol contains these chemicals that you know catechols phenols they have a long um, side chain with uh, carbon and hydrogen on them it is just really effective at once it gets into your skin it's picked up by some of the white blood cells that then take it to a local training center known as a lymph node <laughs> and in the lymph node they go oh wow you know five five alarm fire they rev up all these different white blood cells are going to attack it and they go back to where the chemical entered the skin and then they cause this huge reaction because they're trying to wall off your body from this chemical and in walling it off it's making you know the, the cells separate from each other in the top layer of skin and when they separate it fills with tissue fluid mm. and that's a blister mm. and then it gets really red around it because the blood vessels other chemicals are released from these white blood cells to cause the blood vessels to open up and get really red and warm. And this is trying to expunge your body of this chemical. The first time it sees it, it might take up to two weeks to respond to it. The second time it sees it, it may take anywhere from four to 96 hours, so a few hours to three or four days it will, when it will react each other time you are exposed to it. So if your first exposure is through your skin, you're probably going to become allergic to it. If your first exposures are through your mouth, you're probably going to become desensitized to it. Oh, wow. So how how is that different than somebody developing an allergy to something else, like a dog or a cat or something? Pine pollen and anything like that. Well, uh, pollen is, uh, is different. That's usually a type 4 or type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, which would be like hives, mm -hmm. urticaria, whereas allergic contact dermatitis, there's, you know, there's four classic you know, types of allergic reactions. This is that type. Mm -hmm. So it's exactly the same as things like nickel. Nickel is probably the most common non-poison ivy allergen there is. And so it works in the same way. Mm -hmm. Okay, very And then, cool. you know, I guess a bit of trivia, but why is it that some people in, in a family will react negatively to poison ivy and others will not? Well, uh, one of it is, is age. So typically... Um, very young people are not as allergic, but by around the age seven or eight, if you're exposed to it and you're going to be allergic to it, then you'll start having a strong reaction. So age is one thing. As we get older, you know, you know, past 60, 70, the reaction decreases in time. But it also is is genetics. Like I said, if you're atopic and someone's not, if you're atopic, you know, allergy, hay fever, eczema, um, you are less likely to get it. But there are a number of things that can make somebody have a worse reaction than somebody else who was exposed. You might get just a little bit higher concentration than the other person got exposed to sure. them. And the part of your skin, so the top dead layer of skin is called the stratum corneum. Well, that chemical, the urushiol, has to get through that to find one of those sensitized white blood cells. Mm. So if the skin is really thick, like the palm of your hand or the soles of your feet, Almost nobody reacts there because that dead layer of skin is so thick. But if you get it on thin areas of skin, eyelids and scrotum, those would be oh. the thinnest skin on the body, you're more likely to react. Exactly. Big ouch. Yeah. Sounds like there's a story there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and how, then is how do you actually get it? Oh. Do you have to look at the plant? Do you have to touch it? Do you have to Blind people can get poison ivy. So yeah. <laughs> How do you get it? That, that's a good question. So this chemical that's in there, urushiol, um, is only released from, quote, damaged plants. Okay. So an intact plant, theoretically, if you just touch an intact leaf, you should not get it. Mm -hmm. The problem is trauma might be as little as rainfall, uh, brushing up against it to, to break, you know, break it apart. And then what happens, and here's one of the good things for identifying it, it's noticing little black spots 
on the plants, on the leaves, on any part of the plant. Any part of poison ivy can give you the rash any time of the year. Okay, mm. there's no safe time, there's no safe part, period. But you'll see these little black spots. And urushiol, when exposed to air, contains an enzyme called lacase that turns it black. Mm. And so what you can do to see if something has, is poison ivy or not, or is poison oak or poison sumac, if you take a piece of white paper, this is called the black spot test. Mm. If you take a piece of white paper and you put a leaf in there without touching it, just grab it in the white paper and kind of just rub the paper together with the part of the plant in there, within 10 minutes, it should turn brown and then black if it's poison ivy. That's the urushiol. The paper wow. that is. The paper will. Yeah. So you'll also notice these little spots on plants. Now, you know, you've heard the thing, leaves of three, leave them be. Well, what, what the heck does that mean? Well, a lot of plants have yeah, something about a red dot in the center, is that right? Or a pinkish coloration where the three leaves come together? Is that uh, folklore? We'll, we'll, we'll get to, to what that... Well, so first of all, each leaf has three leaflets on it. So the stem of the leaf connects to the, you know, either the, the, the upright tiny trunk, if it's a little shrub, or if it's a climbing vine, connects to the, the big aerial root, the big vine. The... So three leaflets on a leaf. And then where the leaf attaches is called the axilla, which is a name we know from our human body. The axilla yeah, right. is the medical word for? Armpit. Armpit. Yeah. So it's like the armpit of the leaf. So that's the area that I think you were referring to. So where the leaf attaches in that axil or axilla, that's where the fruit grows from. And so there are little poison ivy fruit, and they look like little clusters of grapes. And when they are um, immature, they're kind of greenish, but when they are mature, they typically turn white, bright white. They're tiny, and birds eat these. They love these. They don't react to these, and that's one great way that poison ivy has gotten spread all over North America. Mm. <laughs> Bird poop <laughs> with Jeez, poison nice. ivy fruit and seeds in it. Wow. Now, I've noticed, maybe I'm imagining it, but if I'm trying to get poison ivy out of my garden, uh, I'll know that I've touched it. I can tell yes. it starts to tingle. And if I immediately go wash with soap and water, the tingling area, it seems not to react. Am I imagining that? No. If you're getting to it right away, mm. that's what you need to do. In fact, early studies done in the 70s and 80s by Dr. Alexander Fisher, who was a, a great contact dermatitis expert, uh, showed that if you don't get to it within 10 minutes, you only probably get maybe half of it off. Mm. Although there's more recent studies that show if you think you've been exposed, the best thing to do is use any dishwashing detergent. Well, first rinse in water, yeah. then use dishwashing detergent and try to do it three times and always rub your skin the same direction. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, don't go in circles from one part of the body. Just keep you know, rubbing it down and mm. off of you with the water. That's your best chance to get rid of it. Because once it penetrates the skin, and if you're sensitized, you're going to have a reaction. So in terms of being sensitized or sensitive, more common in, uh, as we age, uh, and it's going to be genetically determined within a family even, who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. And the more times you're exposed, the stronger reaction you're going to have. Mm. Now, so we talked about three leaves, let it be, <laughs> and those related issues. What is this ivy versus oak thing? It, they're just different um, species within the poison ivy genus. Mm. So the genus is called toxicodendron, which literally means poison tree. <laughs> and so there are two main species of poison ivy. One of them climbs trees. I've seen it over 50 feet up a tree. In mm. fact, even in, along our driveway, there's trees with poison ivy that goes that high. The nerve. <laughs> the nerve of it, yes. Uh, so what, what I will often do is I'll just take shears and I'll cut that aerial uh, root at the base of the tree and then it will all die going up the tree so it doesn't propagate anymore. But then, so that's common poison ivy, which is across most of the eastern two-thirds of the United States. But then there is another poison ivy, which is known as western and northern poison ivy. This one doesn't climb trees, also has leaves with three leaflets, but they're little tiny shrubs. They might be a foot high, 18 inches high. Hmm. But I've seen them all over the country. I've, I've photographed them. They say they don't occur over 5,000 feet. I photographed them at seven or 8,000 feet in the Rockies. I had hmm. a naturalist with me who was an expert. Uh, 
Two years ago, I was in Spearfish Canyon, South Dakota at 4,000 feet. There is a huge crowd of them. In fact, pictures of that just got in an article that I uh, helped a medical student write on Western poison ivy. Oh, that's awesome. So poison oak and um, uh, has two main species. There's an eastern and a western. And they, they've said that out in Golden Gate Park, under the Golden Gate Bridge, the most common shrub there is poison oak. It's just as allergenic as poison ivy. The leaves are just a little bit different in appearance. Well, with that, gentlemen, let's take uh, a break. We'll be right back with more fascinating information on plants on Dr. Doctor. <laughs> okay, and we're back with Dr. Doctor. <laughs> talking to my friends here, the doctors, and talking to Tom as the expert on plants, poison ivy. And skin. And skin. And skin. Obviously. <laughs> and so... Tom, we got poison ivy in our yard. I hate it. Uh, I want to get rid of it. How, how should I get rid of it? Should I burn it, for example? You know, burning would be a great idea if you really hate your neighbors and your family members and mm. you wear an N95 respirator because the smoke can carry uh, the allergen. And so uh, okay. people can respond all over their bodies. I've actually heard that and thought it was untrue, but that is, that is factual. Absolutely true. In fact, it's the biggest cause of lost time in forest firefighters. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's nasty bad. You do not want to burn. So they'd get an all over ivy. body rash. Anywhere that was exposed mm. to the air that wasn't covered. Wow. I saw one guy, his whole face and torso. I'm sure. Like, what in the world? But sure. No, nope, that's a real thing. Not so not don't a burn myth. it. Don't burn it. In fact, what I did when I uh, was writing a lot of these when I was in my fellowship in Connecticut, we had an apple tree in back and wanted the kids to climb, but there was. Poison ivy got there first to climb it, so I um, uh, I sprayed it with uh, Roundup, nice. <laughs> and then after it dried up, I buried it. Uh, ah, now nice. I've been told in a garden with short plants, put Roundup on a sponge and then just go by and squeeze the plant. I don't know if that's factual or not, but I've hmm. been told that. I, I just know that bigger surface area of the plant that absorbs it, it will the die soon. I think you want to get into the Cambria layer too. Like if you do a cross section, you yes. sniff the root. Right. And then spray. If you touch. spray that base, yeah. yes. they're toast. Um, and and so, <laughs> something else, that black spot test I mentioned can be helpful in knowing, because I, I wrote an article oh, over 20 years ago on poison ivy lookalikes, because a lot of plants can have these three three leaflets per leaf. So if you aren't sure and you you need to know, just squeeze some between that piece of white paper. If it doesn't turn black in 10, 20 minutes, well, that one's not poison ivy. Well, if you're in a big family with a lot of siblings, you could just get one of your siblings to touch the plant and then see if they react. That, that's that's, that's right. called an open application test. Exactly. <laughs> Most people do that in the inside of their elbow, but uh, you know, right. you're more creative than that. Yeah. Does Tom, when you're making the diagnosis of some of these things, can you describe about uh, the location on the skin or the appearance of the rash? Does that give you some hints as to what may have happened? Well, if it if there's usually uh, streaks that are slightly curved or or straight, uh, looking like some like you brushed against something, uh, that's usually a good indication. There's probably a plant involved, especially if there are multiple areas that look like that. So, so no, go ahead. And it'll start out usually as being just red, uh, but then it'll become raised in red. And then, uh, and sometimes it might not progress to blisters, but most of the time, little blisters, we call vesicles, and then uh, bigger blisters. So, you know, someone is going to encounter this, they're going to get symptoms, and they're going to probably end up seeing you in the office, Andrew. Uh, some amount of time has gone by from sure. exposure. What's the, as we say in medicine, the natural course, if sure. just left alone? <clears throat> if left alone, it's going to take two to three weeks to run its weeks, course. Weeks, not days. Not days, no. Uh, with intense itching and irritation. I intense, yeah. And what about spread, if left alone? So how does poison ivy spread? Um, you mentioned something earlier about your genes. Yeah. Absolutely. Clothing can spread it, and it will be those little black dots mm. that urushiol, and guess what? Mm. Urushiol does not lose its potency in years. In wow. fact, here's another wow. little tidbit. <laughs> Toxicodendron verniciflua, that's the Japanese lacquer tree. There's actually a group of artisans in Japan that use lacquer from a tree from the same genus as poison ivy, uses urushiol to lacquer wood and make it look pretty. Wow. Good grief. There are even lacquered toilet seats. And yes, if wow. you sit on one decades later, 
you will still react. So sit with caution if you're in Japan. That sounds like a trick toilet seat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not a good trick either. So, <laughs> but touching clothing, or clothing and yeah. animals. So if pets ah. get it on their hair, they can come in and brush. They got those black spots. Mm. You don't want to see that. One of the nastiest ways to get it, and this might be as bad as burning. Do not. I repeat, do not use a weed eater, weed whacker, strimmer oh. to try to get rid of poison ivy. Oh, wow. Because then you can get, and I've seen pictures of it, I haven't seen the patient with it, what's called black spot poison ivy dermatitis. So you get these little black spots of urushiol all over the exposed areas. And not only is poison ivy uh, resin cause an allergy, but it's also just toxic um, to anybody as an irritant. Mm. So you get, you know, you add insult to injury here and you get all these big red swollen blister areas all over your body like you've been just shot with buckshot. Oh, uh. man. Yeah. So Bad news. Why does it appear in some cases to spread to other parts of the body that weren't initially that encountered? That is an excellent question. So that goes back uh, to two things. Number one, you might get different amounts on different areas of skin. Mm. And the second thing is how thick is your top dead layer of skin, that mm -hmm. stratum corneum? The thicker it is, the longer it will take to react. That's uh -huh. why the eyelids are going to react, you know, before the back of the hand, mm. which would react before your upper back. So it was from the initial, it doesn't spread on its own. Correct. Uh, it's not a creeping disease. No. And in fact, one of the biggest myths is that you can spread it to different parts of your body by having blisters leak. Like self-contamination, so to speak. Right. The blister fluid does not contain the allergen, does not spread it on you, cannot spread it to another person you touch. So the only way you can touch another person and spread it is if you have those actual black spots on you and they touch another so person. So once the chemicals in your skin causes right. you to react, mm -hmm. another sensitive person could rub that rash and not become affected. That's absolutely unless right. Unless they have that weed eater black dot syndrome. You got it. Mm. Gotcha. So opposite of shingles, although it might look similar, <laughs> right? Um, you know, it, some shingles can look really, um, yeah, that have that curved appearance, one part of the body and get really even blistered hemorrhagic looking. So yes, mm -hmm. there are cases of shingles that could mimic it, but shingles is going to have the, the fiery pain, unlike the poison But getting back to your question, Andrew, um, so cutting a vine at its base, yep. the plant's going to die. It's going to die. Um, we're not in any way endorsing Roundup, given all of its issues, <laughs> but, but a, a toxic weed killer is yes. going to kill it, especially if it's been cut. Anything else listeners should know about getting rid of poison ivy? It's a resilient plant. It's coming back. And and kind of what should you do, too? Because one of the things that I learned the hard way, I must have gotten some on some work gloves. So mm. even months later, when I was not interacting with plants. It was interacting I, with you. I yeah. was getting poison ivy. I was yeah. like, good grief. What's <laughs> going on? Yep. So you, you see poison ivy. Okay, you go wash your hands, wash your clothes. What else should they do as kind of a first aid thing at home? I think you pretty much covered it. You know, try to rinse off with water, then using dishwashing liquid. Any of the expensive things that say they're made to get rid of it don't work any better than dishwashing liquid. Um, and yes, washing the clothes, checking the pets, see if they've got anything. When would you need to seek out medical care and how should we do that? Uh, you know, they well, say, well, even before that, so you get it, you know, you have it. The best thing to do is take Benadryl, right? That helps. Mm. Um, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I No, I have. Uh, yeah. And this is, you know, back to what Andrew was talking about, the up to date article on poison ivy dermatitis. I had to fight with the editors for years because there was a lot of quote received wisdom end quote about what would work. <laughs> and one of them is that, oh, antihistamines are good for anything that itches. This is patently false. Mm. The only itching that antihistamines are good for are those caused by a type one hypersensitivity reaction, which is like hives, mm -hmm. um, uh, not a type four, which is the the contact dermatitis. So continue with that I, to, to Andrew's question. You, you, you're pretty sure you've contacted it. Now you know you're in trouble. What do you do? Well, it depends how bad your symptoms are. Mm. So if it's, if it's really mild, I mean, some people just live with it and let it run its course. It usually itches so intensely that that's not easy. If you're going to use something topically, you've got to start it fast and it would only be the very strongest forms of topical cortisone 
creams, uh, topical steroids. Not what you could buy over the counter. That's over the counter stuff won't help. You know, the one exception I've seen, there's a small study about it, and I've I've got anecdotal evidence also from people who've used it. There's a product called Zanfel, Z-A-N-F-E-L. It's a, a type of surfactant. It's it's a gritty type soap rubbed on the area. I've heard people say that have had horrible reactions. This helps. So that's the only over-the-counter thing I've heard people say actually helps. It's not cheap. But in general, you're going to need to get in. You're going to need to see somebody get a prescription for at least a topical steroid. Cream. The strongest form of them. And it's interesting in looking at studies, you know, what was the most expensive, least expensive, most effective, least effective places to be treated? Well, the ER was the least, most expensive and least <laughs> effective place to get treatment. That's most, also true. Mm. Yes. Most ex- uh, effective and least expensive was in a doctor's office. Now, these expensive creams actually cost more than treatment that's more effective. Mm. Oh, wow. So if somebody is having intense itching, I don't care how big the area or small the area, if it's intention, it's keeping you from doing what you're supposed to be doing. My favorite one and done is a mix, is an injection into your muscle, a mixture of a low dose of two steroids, one that acts quickly and goes away within several days, and one that takes a few days to act, but lasts for three weeks. Okay. And this combination of, um, you know, Triamcinolone acetonide or Kenalog is a, a brand name, and uh, Budesonide or Celestone. My goodness, uh, it almost never fails. The side effects from that are less than from taking steroid pills, which is your other option, which is using prednisone. Now, people have been prescribed things called dose packs of steroids. And they're usually low dose and they only last six days. Those are your favorite, right, Tom? Oh, yeah, my, my favorite to pillory. Um, <laughs> in, in other words, what happens is you might get enough benefit that it goes away for a few days, but once you stop it, boom, it's like the rash comes back. No, it was always there. It was just kind of suppressed. You've got to suppress it until it runs its course. Six days is almost never enough. So that's why I recommend you know at least 15-day taper of prednisone by mouth or uh, this injection, which, my gosh, and, and it took me – you know, years with the editors and, you know, more evidence comes out and it's like, yeah, I guess we'll put that in there. <laughs> but one of the biggest things is the antihistamines. They said, well, it'll help you sleep. Actually, no. Antihistamines do not help the itch because the itch has nothing to do with histamine. Secondly, they say, well, some is- antihistamines make you sleepy. Well, they do. But when you do a sleep study and an EEG, your sleep cycles are completely interrupted. Your sleep is awful. And guess what? You itch just as much when you're sleeping with these antihistamines as if you weren't on them. So they are not helpful. In fact, they're harmful because you feel even worse afterwards. So, Tom, you said a couple of weeks is the natural course. Two to three. Um, the astute uh, patient gets in quickly and sees someone. Yep. Gets started on the McGovern protocol. Yeah. What should they expect then? Uh, if they're using uh, the shot, they're probably going to start to feel much better within 12 hours. Uh, and then it's just going to melt away within a couple days. That fast. Yeah. And the long-acting steroid lasts up to four weeks. Mm. So even if they were on the longer end, the three-week one, I mean, it's dirt cheap. The side effects, whereas with three weeks of prednisone, yeah, you might have some side effects. You might feel you know, emotionally really a little bit agitated or your appetite might go up mm-hmm. like it does with prednisone. But you won't get the long-term side effects of someone that's been on prednisone for, for years. So uh, a lot of other things, you had mentioned antihistamines. I see folks get prescribed are other topical type steroids right. and other non-antihistamine sedative type anti-itch medications like doxepin is one Wait, which is an antihistamine which is a very strong antihistamine actually mm-hmm. among so, other things so what what beyond steroids would you ever use and would you ever use topical steroids for poison ivy only if somebody had a very isolated case that wasn't you know didn't bother them a lot and they already had some because those are far more expensive than the injection or the um or the prednisone that you could take I mean, I, I'm for making my patients happy. And I remember seeing doctors who said, oh, no, we better just use a cream. The patients were never happy. They never felt better. <laughs> In fact, I saw, um, I can't give away names, but I saw a very famous person, but I was not the senior in the room. But in the room, I did know the most about poison ivy. And this person got poison ivy. The doctor prescribed these little sample tubes of steroids, and he just suffered for two to three mm. weeks. But I couldn't. I couldn't say anything. It's just, uh, it's horrifying seeing these people suffer. Patients are so happy when they're treated this way. 
I've got some patients who tell me I really hate steroids because of the lack of sleep or just that, that psychomotor agitation. That's where the injection, the dose is so much less than the prednisone by mouth would be when you get the injection. And the effectiveness is so much faster. Yes. Well, right. the prednisone kicks in fast, but if you use the, the, the short, fast-acting mixed with the slow, right. long-acting... You're going to get immediate almost response. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So we could probably go on and on about poison ivy, poison oak, and all of these things, but there are actually other plants that cause other problems. There are. <laughs> what else should listeners be aware of in, in that category? Uh, one of the most common causes of itching from plants around the world is called stinging nettle. Hmm, and I yeah. don't know if either of you have ever seen stinging nettle. No, no. Is that is that similar to the nettles that you'll find in just grass or a yeah. garden? Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, it grows all over the world. In fact, some of the pictures I got for the most recent, um, my most recent book chapter, came when I was running along the Thames River in Oxford, England. <laughs> it's just loaded yeah. with stinging nettles. <laughs> uh, but the, they don't uh, like those sprays over there. I don't think. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the sprays will not make. I mean, it's everywhere. And it's all over the U.S. too. Uh, so stinging nettle has these little tiny hairs, emergences on the stems, on the leaves, and they're slightly curved. And when I was in my residency, I was really fortunate. I had this like dissecting microscope at my desk so that, you know, it was a, a big thing to look at uh, nail fold capillaries. Well, I also use it to get some really cool pictures of plant parts. Ah, nice. And so <clears throat> these little hairs are actually like little tiny hypodermic needles mm. oh, made wow. of silica, and calcium, different parts of it are. And these little spines that can, it, it's like inject into you and then the tip breaks off and there's liquid in there. Oh. And some of the liquid is actually histamine. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and there are other chemicals in there and that will cause little wheels or hives, at, which will last the normal length that hives will last and they'll start itching within five to ten minutes might last several hours to a couple days. Is that itching only or itching with intense burning? Um, that's a great question. The name of the plant family that stinging nettle belongs to is called urticaceae. And <laughs> U-R-O, which is the root for urtica, is from the Latin word meaning to burn. Mm. So yes, <laughs> it will come with burning and itching. And this is one thing where antihistamines do help because the primary driver of the itching is the histamine. Right. Now, there are other members of this same family which live in Australia. The Australian stinging tree. Yikes. The Australian stinging tree, if some of this gets in your eyes, you can actually... Uh, get enough of it you can actually die oh my word but they finally figured out why people can have stinging from this for years afterwards stinging nettle you know hours maybe a couple days they identified a chemical it's called gympietides uh, and the gympietides are similar to a toxin in poisonous spiders Whoa. and this toxin is ultra stable it gets in your skin and it just keeps on causing this intense burning and nerve-like pain. Wow. Yes. That's really bad. Yes, there are some really bad plants in the world. And, and as my children used to tell me, in Australia, it's like everything in nature is trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Stay off the continent. Yeah. That's funny. Well, tell us about some other plants and, and things that are closer to home. You, you had this fancy word related to limes. Is that right? Yeah. Phytophotodermatitis. Phyto, plants, photo, light, dermatitis, rash on the skin. So probably the most common cause of this um, in the United States, especially in the, the South, would be from limes. So bartenders, and if you're at an outdoor bar and you've got a little lime slice there and you get some of this, that on your hands, what will happen is it contains a chemical that's sensitive to ultraviolet A light, a type of light that can go through window glass. We call it you know, black light, so-called. And it activates this chemical so that it first causes blistering. So you'll get a same kind of patterned rash like you would get in a poison ivy reaction or to anything else. But then 
a week or two later, when the rash is gone, it starts to turn dark brown. It can stay that way for years. The darker your skin is, the longer it will last because the chemical also activates the DNA in the melanocytes, the cells that make pigment. And so you make more melanocytes and the melanocytes make more packets of melanin and they share their melanin with more of the non-melanocyte skin cells so it turns dark. And one of the most important aspects of this is that it has been confused with child abuse. So think about it. If you get some of the lime juice on your hand and you know your beach side and you know this lime juice is on you and you put your hand on the back of one of your children. You're going to leave a handprint, aren't you? And then a few weeks later, they might have what looks like a handprint, but it will not have the different kind of colors that a bruise will have. So that's one of the uh, importance is there. Now, there are other plants in nature like this. And in fact, this was the earliest treatment for vitiligo. You know, vitiligo is a skin disease where you lose all your pigment in some parts of your mm. skin. It's autoimmune. And so in Egypt, 4,000 years ago, in India, 3,500 years ago, there are plants there that belong to uh, the family. It's a uh, Apiaceae, but they contain the same kind of chemicals. And they learned that if you smear the chemical on those areas and then go out in the sun, yeah, you'll get a blistering rash, but you'll also often get pigment come back. And that became the basis for something that's been used, you know, the last century called PUVA therapy. Sorolins is the P, is silent P, that's the chemical, plus ultraviolet A light used to repigment people with loss of pigment. See also wow. Michael Jackson. It didn't work, but um, yeah. right. No, it doesn't. Especially vitiligo on um, yeah hands, fingers. That's the hardest to treat. So Tom, in the in the time remaining before our next break, what about danger? So poison ivy is a pain, quite right. literally, but it's not going to cost you your life. Um, what's in? What's a plant that hikers have to watch out for that could actually harm them if they ingest it? You know what? That is beyond the scope of my knowledge. (laughs) But there is something called the Manzanil tree in some Caribbean islands that contains um, high concentrations of four-ball esters. Mm -hmm. The um, poinsettias, same family, very low concentration. But that's one that if you're sleeping under the Manzanil tree and some of that drips into your eyes, mm. you can go blind. Well, I, I've seen warnings on you know Christmas poinsettia plants before about not letting your animals or children ingest them. Right, that's uh, the four ball esters. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're called spurges because of their purgative properties. <laughs> and in fact, Dioscorides over 2,000 years ago gives instructions for how to mix them up into laxative pills. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Gee whiz. So Tom, when are you going to write your history on plants book? Um... I didn't know I was, Andrew. <laughs> I, it sounds like there's something there. I don't know. I really enjoyed this, especially the etymology. I'm a big fan of that. Helps paint the picture. And uh, we're just grateful. Grateful for you sharing this knowledge. And hopefully we can dig up some more plant stuff to talk about because I enjoyed this. It could happen. Well, with that, gentlemen, let's take uh, a break. We'll be right back with more fascinating information on plants on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and as always, welcome to the answer to this episode's trivia question, which it probably comes as no surprise, has to do with plants. Yes, plants and the heart. So I see this plant, uh, we have a a vacation home on Mackinac Island, and I see this plant every summer when I go up there. It's got a purple flower, and a a chemical from it is now used as a medicine to help hearts contract stronger especially in congestive heart failure. What's the name of this plant with the purple flower? Andrew? Digitalis. Digitalis is the genus of the plant. The (laughs) the species is purpura, like purple. So digitalis purpura, and it's commonly known as foxglove. Yes. Foxglove grows around the world. There are different colors of it, but uh, the common one is purple. So now you know. I know something even about at least one plant that doesn't have a skin effect. We were watching Columbo recently, and this showed up as a murder weapon. Oh, really? Because the guy was on a prescription, but it's the dosage is Toxicity. very yeah touchy. Oh, so. it is. And I believe yeah. it was one of the early early cardiac drugs. Oh, right? it was. Yeah, it may well have been the first one. Yeah. 
Fascinating stuff. So do we have a top three takeaways, gentlemen? Well, I can't escape what we said early on, and that is just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good. Now, of course, everything made by God is good um, in, in the right dose, so to speak, pun yes. intended. But uh, just because something is a plant and it looks pretty doesn't mean that you can grind it up and make a soup of it and, and, <laughs> and everything is okay. So um, you need to log on to the McGovern you know, textbook of, of, of plants and skin and understand what you're ingesting. I, I guess for my my two cents, you know, it uh, if you see poison ivy, you think you got into it, the leaves are three bit, go and wash immediately, change your clothes, wash your clothes. I think you can really fend off a lot of it mm. that way. And then ultimately, if you develop a significant rash, you're going to need to get your hands on some prednisone or another uh, steroid shot. And, and finally, I like... Uh, stopping a myth in its tracks when I can. And this one, antihistamines are of no help and really only hurt you. They help hurt you topically because you're likely to get an allergic reaction to the topical ones and the oral ones. You'll just sleep worse and it will not help the itch. So just don't go there. And that really can sound heretical to grandmothers listening and we apologize. But uh, topical antihistamines, oral antihistamines, it's not going to help. Yes. Oh, I every day at work, and you guys probably do the same thing. There's so many quote old wives tales, whoever <laughs> these old wives were, but they're just not true. And <laughs> we, we we try to be a public service to you here on Doctor Doctor. And so thank you for listening to another public service announcement of this episode. You can find this one and all of them on our website, drdoctor.org. While you're there, click on episode archive, and you can check out over 300 of our other episodes if you sh so desire. And believe it or not, we all dressed up today, so check out our YouTube <laughs> link. Um, any comments are appreciated. It's at the top of the website, drdoctor.org. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Strath. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. This episode of the Seek 23 podcast was produced by Spoke Street. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com. When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Have you dreamt of visiting the places where Jesus walked or where the saints made their marks on the world? Trust your trip to the Pilgrimage Company that more priests, Catholic authors, speakers, and theologians trust. Select International Tours. For 36 years, Select International Tours has provided the very best in pilgrimage travel, including centrally located hotels, the best local Christian guides, and unparalleled access to sacred sites and cultural experiences. SelectInternationalTours.com is the first step on your next pilgrimage.